we find our focus this evening on a specific period, time of day on Good Friday. At this point in the Passion account of Jesus, Jesus had already been rejected by many people. He was betrayed and rejected by Judas as Jesus is seized. And in that whole ordeal, his disciples, for fear of their lives, such as Peter, denies Jesus a total of three times. The chief priests and religious Pharisees had rejected Jesus as well, for they were the ones conspiring to entrap Jesus so that he would be brought before the Roman government and punished as if he had done wrong or committed a crime. And in doing so, they rejected their promised Messiah, who they ridiculed and mocked as the quote-unquote king of the Jews. And Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome. And there was a custom in that ancient time where during a feast, where the governor, Pilate, would release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Sort of what we have in our modern day of what's known as kind of like a presidential pardon. And the notorious prisoner the people wanted to free when given the option was shocking. The people wanted Barabbas free rather than Jesus. Yet again, we see the dark gloom of an innocent and righteous man being rejected by the crowd before the governor of Rome. Pilate, in the heat of the moment, in an eager attempt to to confirm what was on the hearts of the people, asks, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Their answer is shocking. Let him be crucified! Pilate, seemingly hesitant to give in to the desires of the mob crowd for the sake of civil peace and rest, asks a fundamental question, knowing the ramifications of his decision, may as well have, as well as his own conscience, by sentencing an innocent person to death. So we ask, why? What evil has he done? Unable to give a, a rational and reasoned answer, the people double down on their hearts, desires by shouting, let him be crucified. Crucifixion is historically recognized in Roman history as the epitome of cruel punishment. And even before the Romans, it was recognized in practice as a horrid display of enemies who died in battle to strike fear in their enemies. For Rome, this form of punishment was reserved for for slaves, for notorious criminals and insurrectionists. Why? For the purpose of making a political statement. Yet the crucifixion of Christ isn't a political statement. It was a same statement at sight of rejection of the Son of God by many. It was the punishment of an innocent and righteous man that should elicit shock and injustice like today when we discover decades later those who have been wrongly convicted and sentenced for crimes they didn't actually, after the fact, are found out to not commit, to not have committed. And that is a scandalous backdrop of the cross of Jesus. And it's in the beginning of verse 45 that we find ourselves in what are some of the darkest hours of his life in the life of Jesus, as he experiences anguish. Jesus has already been sentenced, mocked, stripped, scourged, and crucified on a cross. And Jesus is hanging on that wooden beam 
nailed and bleeding. And we find ourselves at the sixth hour of day. Back day, back in that day, the day began at approximately 6 a.m. So the sixth hour, counting from the beginning of day, from 6 a.m., places these events at noon in what is usually regarded as at where the sun rises to its highest during the day and when it should have been the, the brightest before it begins to set. But there was darkness over the land. What should have been high noon was dark noon. Or as the preacher Charles Spurgeon once put it, it was midnight at midday. There was thick darkness. And whether this was only over the land covering the area of Palestine or over all the earth is debated by some scholars. But one thing is certain. This was not a solar eclipse, but a supernatural miracle brought about by the sovereign, powerful, almighty God. For in that event, in that supernatural display of darkness, nature testified to the powerful significance in Christ's suffering. Bearing the cup of wrath poured out on Jesus, the eternal weight of sin which demanded an eternal, infinite judgment. And the darkness shows the tragedy of what happened before all of human history to see. The darkest hours from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. lead to the darkest hour of Good Friday, where the Son of God, as the scripture says in verse 46, where Jesus in the moments of greatest anguish utters in horrific cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words are known as part of the total of seven sayings or phrases of Jesus on the cross. While other gospel accounts contain other sayings of Jesus on the cross, the account according to Matthew only includes this one. And for good reason. While the other gospel accounts contain other sayings of Jesus on the cross, Matthew has in mind this being a focal point for emphasis. You see, the biblical authors, they didn't always write out every single detail about Jesus' life in chronological fashion. Rather, they arranged the content, they recorded their, uh, Jesus' life, the, his, his life's testimony, in order to place emphasis and particular weight on certain aspects of his life or things that Jesus spoke of. And in verse 46, what we discover is this. That in the darkest hour of Jesus' suffering, it teaches us what he had to endure so that we would not experience eternal separation from God. And here Jesus does not refer to God as Father or even call him Abba, right? That term of intimacy as one that has experienced un uninterrupted, unbroken, sweet fellowship with his Father as he did in eternity past. No, here, he expresses true abandonment from God. You know, as I read this and studied this text this past week, I couldn't help but try to come to terms with this profound mystery. One question, question swirling in my mind or across my mind was this. Was Jesus, Jesus actually forsaken in those moments of judgment? Or did he only feel forsaken? And in what way is Jesus forsaken and abandoned? 
Well, when we come across passages like this in the Bible, we can sometimes take what is said too lightly. We often soften it to a degree. And in doing so, we lose sight of what really happened in the darkest hour that he endured. And I read this passage and initially think that this is perhaps a feeling or sense of abandonment that perhaps didn't reflect the true reality. And I think sometimes we can fall into that trap. For example, I fondly, rem- I fondly remember um, a couple here at Sunset who used to be a part of Sunset Church until recently moving overseas, you know what I'm talking about, to establish a business as a means for doing missions to an unreached people group. And during their time here at church and during gatherings at their house that they would invite others into, I always remember how their two daughters, who are still infant and toddler age, would always be really easily anxious and often cry, you know, or burst into tears for just being temporarily separated from mommy or from daddy. Like the separation anxiety of when the one who has cared for you from even before and since your birth might just possibly no longer be there for you. But the reality was, as I watched all this unfold in their normal day-to-day life, family life, was that their mother was simply just in another room, or perhaps 20, 30 feet away for a short period of time, sometimes even just for a few minutes. But lo and behold, as many infant and toddlers are when they feel separated or abandoned, like a kid being separated from parents amidst a large crowd at Disneyland, but are later reunited with their loving parents who would have wished they were never separated due to maybe not paying attention for a mere quick few seconds. We think to ourselves, ah, that's how Jesus must have felt. But this sort of unintentional abandonment or mere feeling of being abandoned is not the kind of separation that verse 46 speaks about. For what Jesus experienced in the darkest hour was an actual, was a deliberate abandonment. But we must ask at this point, in what way was Jesus abandoned? What type of separation did he experience? Well, one thing that scripture does not teach was that if there was some sort of separation in the mysterious nature of the triune God, neither in the essence or substance did the triune God change or cease to be the Trinity. Jesus didn't cease to be the Son. God the Father did not cease to love his Son. The Spirit did not cease to minister to the Son while on the cross. So then what was it? This was a deliberate abandonment by the Father and something Jesus acknowledged even in the Garden of Gethsemane where he expected he would be abandoned. When he was in deep anguish while praying and preparing for what he had to endure, he was in on it. He was conscious, conscious of God's redemptive plan and purposes to take away the sins of the world, that the cup of God's wrath must be poured out on him and no other. Otherwise, there is no justice. Otherwise, God's justice would not be satisfied. And so this deliberate abandonment is revealed in Scripture in that Jesus is truly abandoned by the Father in that the Son was killed by his very own father. What a horrifying, horrifying thought first, upon first glance. This is the climax and display of abandonment when it comes to relational fellowship. 
to be treated as a stranger, to be treated as an enemy. The thought of a father killing his own son should shock us. If you recall in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith is tested by being instructed to to offer his very own son Isaac as a burnt offering. And Abraham approaches the, the place of sacrifice with wood to burn and a knife in hand. Abraham does as is instructed out of faith and trust that God would provide a ram as a sacrifice. And in the last moment, as Abraham reached out his hand, the knife ready to slaughter his son, God intervenes through an angel and provides a ram to sacrifice as a substitute in Isaac's place. Isaac, the beloved son of Abraham. And this is a powerful picture of God providing a substitute as a sacrifice. And here at the cross, God plunges the knife deep into his own and only son. It was God who eternally purposed to strike his own son with nails on that wooden cross so that many might become sons and daughters of God. It was God who crushed his son to death. It was God who gave up his son and abandoned his son to those who would reject him. You could say the Jewish religious leaders killed Jesus. You could even say the Gentile crowd or the Roman soldiers killed Jesus. You could even say Pilate was in on it in killing Jesus. He played a part. You could say all of us, sinners deserving the wages of our sins, killed Jesus. But make no mistake. The primary cause of Jesus being killed was that the Father willed it and he accomplished it. He did not spare his very own son. God the Father killed Jesus. And because of this scandalous deed, we must be in awe of what transpired to help unworthy men and women such as ourselves to comprehend the love God has for us in Christ Jesus. Here is the utmost demonstration of love for undeserving people as ourselves who deserve to be nailed on the cross, who deserve God's judgment. And God, the father killing his son, the father exercises his hatred, his burning anger against sin. But it was the only way that by suffering and enduring a period of separation from God, where God hid his own face from his son, for he is too pure to look upon sin, and instead poured out his righteous anger on his own son, so that we would be saved from eternal death by believing in him. He treated his own son like a criminal, receiving his due justice. And he did that, for that was the only way to bring us into a saving relationship with him. That is the meaning behind this saying on the cross, that Jesus experiences separation from God in the darkest hour of judgment, so we may experience eternal life and union with God in Christ Jesus, so that through faith in Christ, we might never see the light of God's wrath and eternal damnation. To be without Christ is to have no faith in Christ, which means eternal separation awaits us. Eternal judgment awaits us before a holy and righteous God. And this bad news leads us to the heart of the good news of the gospel. 
that Jesus paying the penalty of our sin in our place, in doing so, he atones for our sins. All our wrongs, evil thoughts, sinful and immoral deeds and actions were laid upon him. Divine judgment fell on him. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate transgressions and evil to go unpunished. Both sin and punishment for sin were transferred to Jesus. And he experienced this separation that occurs in relation to a holy God so that we wouldn't experience that eternally for ourselves. For that is a description of what hell is, of eternal judgment. Yet he experienced hell on our behalf. The blood of Christ was shed so that death and judgment would pass over us. So rather than God's dark judgment falling upon us, we might experience the light of life. We are forgiven because he was forsaken. So what can we take away from these reflections on the anguish of Jesus that he experienced? For those of you who um, are not Christians here today, or perhaps still trying to wrap your head around, how does a loving God send people to hell and judgment in the first place? I want you to consider how the gospel, the cross of Christ, answers this objection that you may have. You see, one of the common objections to embracing the gospel, and maybe some of you have heard it before, is that, well, if God is loving and good, why does he send anyone to hell at all in the first place? Isn't God, doesn't that just show that God is just mean or unloving? And that's how many in this world actually think when they encounter the truth of God's word and present it with the claims of Christ and the gospel. And even if they accept the idea of hell and judgment, they think it's only for the worst of the worst. The evil scum of society, the Hitlers, the mass murderers, the most vile of criminals. And so you'll think or even say to yourself, well, I don't think I need to hear about this Jesus person, nor am I too afraid of God's judgment. After all, I'm a pretty good person. Sure, I've done some bad things in life, I've broken God's law before. I've stolen. I've had lust in my heart. There are things I've been addicted to or failed to live up to in God's standard of of what's good and what it means to be morally right and pure. But hey, I feel like I've done also a lot of good things, you know? So I guess he'll overlook some of those wrongs in my past. I guess that's what I would say to him. But the problem with this relativistic comparison between yourself and others is that it doesn't address the seriousness of your own sin or your personal responsibility and culpability. You see, judgment isn't only for those really bad people who deserve it. Rather, God's word says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Or going back to the person who thinks that they do, they can do good in the world to earn maybe a good standing in favor with God one day, sort of like doing enough good in this world to outweigh the bad things you've done in the past, this reasoning falls short too. It may ease your sense of guilt and perhaps block out the idea that there's this perfectly just God who created you and who you will have to come before one day and give an account for how you lived your life. But that's not enough. You see, your misconception lies in the fact that you don't think your sins are that serious. Sins aren't just mistakes or unconscious whoopsies in life. To the God who made you, it's cosmic treason 
in your disobedience and going against God's purposes and creating you to be worshipers of him and to live for him. And at the same time, you can't do enough good things in life anyways that are virtuous enough to escape the punishment of your past sins and crimes against an all-knowing God who will judge you one day. You see, we like to think of ourselves as the Jean Valjeans of Les Miserables, seeking to find redemption through our current or future actions so that we can perhaps leave behind our past. But it doesn't work like that. You can't find redemption through man, for it only comes through the God-man, Christ Jesus. And in the same way that we wouldn't allow a criminal who has committed atrocious acts to get off trial and judgment by mere words of the defendant promising the judge, look, I'll become a better person. So can we overlook the jury's verdict and the judge's sentence? That would be atrocious, right? Scandalous. That would be injustice. And similarly, God who is perfect just cannot overlook transgressions of his perfect law. Justice demands payment. Justice demands punishment. And what's lost in these objections is the very fact that God does offer the way of escape for you. He does offer you a way to be forgiven while not contradicting his just nature. And the answer is the cross of Christ. You see, God didn't have to send his son to save us. He wasn't obligated to. In fact, God could have sent, hypothetically speaking, all of us to hell to be punished for our sins. And he would have been fair and just in doing so. After all, people are sentenced to eternal judgment, not because they didn't hear the gospel. They do need to hear the gospel to be saved, but people are sentenced to judgment because of their sin. And the wages of sin is death. Yet the good news is that you can be pardoned through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross if you trust in him. And that's the scandalous nature of God's grace. He gives us something we utterly do not deserve out of his good pleasure. And he offers us pardon and pay the penalty we deserve in full through his blood. If you're a believer here today, ponder these thoughts. You're gathered here this evening. How should these reflections on the cross impact you? Well, first, we ought to be a people who rejoice in the scandalous love and grace shown to us through the cross. We do that by having hearts of gratitude and thankfulness. We acknowledge each and every day it should have been us there. It should have been me there. And our hearts should weep over the fact that the consequences of our sin was laid upon him instead of us. And we are truly growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in light of the cross. We should be growing in gratitude by having thankful hearts. You see, gratitude acknowledges the things you have been given and blessed with are gifts you don't deserve. That it comes by God's grace. And believers who have experienced God's grace through the gospel naturally are growing in being gracious to others with their possessions, with their time, with their loving care and affection, rather than taking on a posture of selfishness 
and thinking everything you have and own is because you earned it. Rather, it's a gift to be stewarded, to bless others so that Christ may be magnified. You see, a cross-transformed view of thankfulness for Jesus also means, also means we are people marked by unshakable joy in all circumstances. We've experienced the, the epitome of God's love in Jesus, and so we're not marked by complaining or bitterness about our circumstances. We can rejoice if God so far ha has sent his son to die for us. We need not doubt his love for us each and every day. We can live in the confidence of what Christ has done for us. We've been forgiven and redeemed through the, the suffering Christ experienced on the cross. As we become humbled by the cross as followers of Jesus, we ought to grow in humility as well. We ought to grow in becoming meek. For us, as Christ-centered, as cross-centered, a cross-centered life acknowledges the, the immense forgiveness we have received. Therefore, we're, we're, we're compelled through the lens of the gospel to be willing to forgive those who have wronged us, even if they don't deserve it. Whether it be friends, family, within a marriage, between husband and wife, or between strangers, we should be, above all others, people marked by forgiveness, rather than giving each other the cold shoulder and avoiding reconciliation. We ought to be peacemakers, just as God has brought us peace with him. And the list can go on and on when we consider the depths of God's love on the cross on our behalf. But in all things, in all that we say or do, it comes from a heart, a posture of worship, an overflow from our hearts and our affections, our love and desire to please and honor God in light of of not that we first loved him, but he first loved us. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the gift of life. It came at a great cost, the cost of your very own son. I pray that through the rest of this evening, we will continue to meditate on that, to reflect upon what we sometimes minimize as a great sacrifice. We, we presume this gift that you owe us when in fact we did not deserve it at all. When what we deserved was condemnation. Yet you embraced us and adopted us as your own. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for showing your kindness towards us. Pray that as you soften our hearts, we would consider areas in our lives where we sometimes take for where we sometimes take for granted. We're not thankful for what Jesus has done for us in our complaining, in our in our doubting, lacking faith as if there's any more that you could show us, you could do for us to show you love us. When the greatest act and demonstration of your love has already been done for us. 
So we praise you. And we pray that this evening we might find our, our joy, our satisfaction, and you would be glorified as we come to behold and embrace and value you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.